The following is a message by Dr. Howell Jones of Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at westcal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. We give thee our thanks, O Lord our God, that already thou hast taught us that new song to the to be sung throughout eternity. And our desire is day by day to lift up our minds and hearts in praise and thanksgiving to thee for thine abundant mercies to us in thy Son, our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, begun to be worked out in our hearts and lives by thine own Spirit. We bow before thee and acknowledge that thou alone art the only God eternally triune. None other is worthy of the name God. And therefore we pray that thy name will be hallowed and exalted throughout all the earth this day. And the kingdom of thy Son extended, and the day draw nearer when thou wilt reign completely and totally over all and everything be under thy manifest sway forever and ever. We commit our brother, Dr. Bob Dindulk, to thee at this time. We pray that thou who hast made us, thou who dost know all about our bodies, our frame, and how wonderfully and intricately we are made together, is known perfectly only to thee. And we therefore ask thee that in thy kindness and in thy mercy, thou wilt use the skills and the attentiveness of the medical team to grant that this complicated surgical procedure may be successful. We look to thee and ask thee for this as we have been, but now together on this occasion as it has begun or will shortly commence, grant his wife and family peace of mind and heart at this time and give us to know that thou art indeed not only our creator and provider, but our Redeemer and eternal guardian and guide. Hear us, pardon our sins, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Will you turn with me to the book of the Revelation and to the 18th chapter and the 19th, the concluding verses of the one and the opening verses of the other. Revelation 18, verse 21. Let us hear the word of God. Then a strong angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer. And the sound of harpists and musicians and flute players and trumpeters will not be heard in you any longer. And no craftsman of any craft will be found in you any longer. And the sound of a mill will not be heard in you any longer. And the lights of a lamp will not shine in you any longer. And the voice of the bridegroom and bride will not be heard in you any longer. For your merchants were the great men of the earth, because all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. 
and in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. After these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous for he has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And the second time they said, Hallelujah, the smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sits on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And a voice came from the throne, saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. May God bless to us his word. We turn back to the book of the prophet Isaiah. And again to this section in chapters 24 through 27 uh, that describes the end of all things. It does so, of course, from an Old Testament or pre-Christian perspective. And as we have just heard, is contemplated by the book of Revelation at the end of the Old Testament. So scripture is not only in agreement with itself on the beginning of all things, but the end of all things too. Now we have noted that the end of all things is described figuratively as a city to be destroyed, but a, a global city. The city of man without God, like that city and tower in the Old Testament, Babel. So it is in the New Testament too. Figurative language is used and of necessity because the reality hasn't come. It's not possible for us to envisage what is yet to be revealed. And we are therefore to be grateful uh, for these word pictures that are given to us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, of the state of affairs, the realm, the kingdom that will come to pass when our Lord Jesus Christ returns from heaven with power and great glory. Now I'm not sure whether last time I omitted to make mention of the fact that this city of man without God uh, has a supernatural dimension to it. But I want just to touch on that now uh, because I think I did omit it. We stress the fact that here is earth, here is city on earth, and all the noise and hubbub, activity and song uh, that goes on in the city is a summary of all that goes on on this earth among mankind. But there are references in Isaiah 24 to things above as well. That may be so in verse 4, where the last clause in that verse reads, the exalted of the people of the earth fade away with a minor alteration 
in the pointing of that clause. It could well be the heights where the people will be destroyed or will fade away. Whether that's so or not, it becomes explicit at the end of this chapter, where in verse 21 we read, So it will happen in that day that the Lord will punish the host of heaven on high and the kings of the earth on earth. The host of heaven and on high. This super-terrestrial, I'm sorry, supra-terrestrial and supernatural dimension of reality is included within the scope of the devastation that is depicted for us in this chapter. Everything is subject to it. Here is a kind of Genesis 1-1 in reverse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, now here is the city of chaos in which not only something terrestrial is included, but something supra-terrestrial as well. Given that, the question that inevitably arises is why? Why should a reversal of Genesis 1 verse 1 occur? And the answer to that question is given in this chapter in some detail. And it is, as I'm sure you'll agree, the only satisfying answer. What I mean by that is not that Isaiah alone of all the scriptural writers has the only satisfying answer, but the Bible as a whole. It's God's word about this event which is yet to come but is drawing near. It is God's word about it alone that can be truly and fully satisfying. Why should Genesis 1 verse 1 be thrown into reverse? Well, there's a, a prior question, unfortunately, and we have to take that one today and leave this other uh, until uh, next time. But I throw it out now that you might begin to think about it and look at this chapter with a view to answering it for yourselves. What kind of event is the end or complex of events? How are we to understand it? We understand Genesis 1-1, very obviously, no problem, creation. Well, what about the end? How are we to understand that? Are we to think of it in physical material terms? as a, a rundown in entropy, the world's latent energy, just like every other machine has its lifespan. So this world does. And there are those who tell us that its battery power is declining by the minute. I don't know whether that's so or not. You must judge that for yourselves. But this I know, that God, the Creator, of all that is, upholds all that he has made. It's in his hands. And what we say about the end must not take the world out of the hands of the creator and see it as a thing in itself, detached from him and from his son, the living word through whom everything came into being. 
in whom everything coheres. He holds it together against all those disturbing, dislocating tendencies and forces within it. We dare not think of the end in a way that contradicts the fact that God is not only the creator of everything, but the sustainer and the provider too. Nor are we to think of it as a, a natural disaster, albeit of an unheralded, unmeasured kind as forces of earth and air and sea combine and rise up against mankind. The ozone layer collapses, ultraviolet light breaks in undimmed. Earthquake, tsunami, and hurricane conspire and combine. And here's a state of affairs in which not only is man weak, but God has to capitulate too. And so the end overcomes the one who made the beginning. Impossible. Can't be. That can't be the explanation either. Nor will a nuclear holocaust generated in the Middle East and engulfing other nations by itself be responsible for it. Though there will be natural disasters beyond anything and everything that has taken place before, they are only effects. Not one of them, nor all of them together, is the cause. What kind of event is the end? It's an act of God. That's what it is. An act of God. Not in the sense that we have it in the small print of our insurance premiums to describe occurrences that cannot really be safeguarded from and insured against events which cannot be really attributed to any individual or set of individuals, even though whenever there's a kind of calamity, who's at fault? Somebody's got to be the fall guy. Let's find him. That seems to be the only thought. Who was at fault? In order that we might avoid the question... Are we at fault? The end is bigger, my friends. Bigger than any other cataclysm that has ever taken place on the face of the earth. Genesis says, in the beginning, God. Well, in the end, God, too. He brings all things into being by his let there be. And he winds things up by his let there be as well. That's what this opening verse of chapter 24 tells us. Behold, the Lord lays the earth waste 
devastates it, distorts its surface, and scatters its inhabitants, not merely in the sense that everything that transpires transpires only at his behest and within the scope of his will, but this takes place by his personal direct intervention. And note that it's the Lord who does it. Not God, Lord, covenant redeemer. This event is not just something that has reference to creation, but redemption. Here is an act of God, the redeemer and the judge of all the earth. His to begin, his to consummate. Well then, why would such a thing, why would he do such a thing? The question becomes even more acute and more complex. And the answers that we have in this chapter satisfy even when the question becomes more complicated. Why would a God who brings everything into being, who holds everything in existence so that it coheres, why would a God who is good and kind and wise, who is the bountiful provider, even, even in the face of man's inhumanity to man, why ever would he do such a thing as this? Is it preposterous for you? Is it something that you would say is impossible? If you think like that, you don't know how sinful sin is. Because the intervention is moral. It isn't the result of a fickle God. It isn't the result of a God who fails. It's the result of a God who judges. It's a moral explanation. Look at verse 20. The earth reels to and fro like a drunkard and it totters like a shack for its transgression. Here's the summary statement. I think rebellion is a better way of putting it. It's rebellion is heavy upon it. Why does God arise to judge the earth? Because the earth time and time again has risen up against God. That's why. And that state of affairs cannot be allowed to continue uninterruptedly. The fact that it's continued as long as it has is an indication only to the long-suffering and patience of God and his desire to call out an innumerable company of the redeemed from north, south, east, and west. There's no other explanation. Transgression will not, cannot be overlooked. God will not overlook it. That's why the end comes. And it comes in the form of curse. Look at verse 6. Therefore, a curse devours the earth. What's curse? God losing his patience and responding in a wild antagonist. Not a bit of it. 
curses all that sin deserves, measurable only in the eyes of a holy God, being visited with the his holy and just dis- disapproval, his anathema, his antagonism, his rejection, his putting outside the sphere of light and love into outer darkness, all that belongs there, with Satan and all his hosts, and he'll do it. He will triumph, and he'll keep them there, under his wrath and just displeasure forever and ever, and no one will escape. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There'll be no escapees. But there'll be innumerable survivors. Through Jesus Christ. Who bore that sin and the guilt. And exhausted the curse. Once and for all and forever. For anyone who trusts in him. Let us pray. Our God and our Heavenly Father. We thank thee for thy dear Son, our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we stand in awe that he was willing to undergo. Thine unmitigated wrath and holy displeasure. For each and every one of his people. Who in terms of their own sins had sinned more than others who never heard of his name. We thank thee O Lord that we are included in him. Covered by his blood from the wrath to come. Clothed in his righteousness. We thank thee that no one will survive in order to deny. But there will be many who survive and thrive in order to praise. Receive our thanks. Gather in those who are yet to come. Make thy people a praise and a rejoicing to the honor of thy name. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.